Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon. Uh, good morning. Uh, if you're on the West Coast, this is uh, Nick Lawrence by phone. I'm a research fellow in energy and environment policy at Heritage and privileged to be hosting today's webinar. Uh, you know, we're about halfway uh, through the Biden administration's first 100 calendar days. And unsurprisingly, energy and climate issues have, have really been on the front burner and will probably stay there throughout the duration of this administration. In less than two months, the administration has canceled Keystone XL, re-entered the Paris Climate Agreement, raised the social cost of carbon, and prohibited fossil fuel lease sales on federal lands, uh, just to name a few things that, that have gone on. And today I'll be joined by three experts to unpack how these decisions, uh, but also really examine the top line energy and climate goals will affect American families and businesses, uh, and examine whether or not they'll uh, achieve their desired environmental outcome. Uh, the format of this webinar today will be a, a moderated discussion, and I encourage you to submit questions throughout the event, and we'll have an opportunity to respond to those uh, later on in the program. So, so with that being said, I'll invite our panelists to now show their faces, and hopefully they have a, a little more easier time than, than I do, and I will briefly introduce them. Uh, joining us today is uh, Todd Johnson, who is the Vice President of Policy at Conserve America a group focused on market-based solutions to today's environmental and energy challenges. Todd previously served at the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality and on committees with jurisdiction over environment and energy issues in the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. He has represented various industries on policy and regulatory compliance matters. Our second panelist is Sean Reagan, who is a research fellow and vice president of research at the Property and Environment Research Center, or PERC, in Bozeman, Montana. He is also the executive editor of PERC Reports, a biannual magazine for free market environmentalism uh, that I subscribe to and receive and, and really enjoy. So uh, after this event, you should get on PERC's website and, and subscribe. He's written a number of different publications, um, everything from op-eds to journal articles, and testified in front of both chambers of Congress. Uh, he was also formerly a backcountry ranger for the National Park Service. And third, we have Travis Fisher, who is the president and CEO of the Electricity Consumer Resource Council. ELCON is a, a DC-based national organization representing large industrial consumers of electricity. Prior to that, he served as an economic advisor to FERC Commissioner Bernie McNamee. He's held several prominent roles within the Department of Energy, was an analyst at the Institute for the Energy Research, uh, and also a staff economist at FERC. Uh, so, so as you can see, we are, are not short on expertise or experience here, uh, and I would encourage you to check out their respective organizations and the content that they produce. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you guys for being here. Travis, I, wa I want to start with you. Yeah, as someone who's worked on electricity policy in the think tank world for government agencies and dependent agencies and, and now leading an organization that represents industrial energy consumers, what is a good energy policy outcome? So I, I think the first thing to to think about, and I'm I'm biased about this because I, I, 
am obviously an advocate for uh, the, the consumer, but, but I think if you take the point of view of the consumer when you analyze policy, you end up in a better place. And, and you know, in terms of the process of it, if um, if you follow what's good for the consumer, you tend to end up with energy policies that support abundance, you know, instead of scarcity. Uh, if you do what the producers want, you tend to get scarcity and high prices and shortages and, and all of that. So uh, I think the right perspective to take is the consumer perspective. Uh, and, you know, we, we end up in a, a, a better policy posture if, if, we, if we take that point of view. And since it's a heritage event, uh, I, I should note that you know I, I'm not the the first one to say this. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the 19th century French economist Frederick Bastiat, uh, and he he said exactly that. So if you if you follow the the points of view, if you if you follow the sort of what's good for the consumer, you you end up with uh, lower cost, more abundance, more choices, all all of the good things that. Uh, you know, that's sort of a, a general posture that you ought to take in policy more broadly, but cer certainly applies to energy and, and to the, the power sector. Completely agree. I think that's a great lens through which we need to look through all of these actions so far. Uh, and you, you mentioned Bastiat and, uh, you know, one thing that he was keen on is, you know, the, the seen and the unseen of the political economy and policies. Uh, and so many of these actions not only have direct and indirect effects, but we also need to consider opportunity costs and trade-offs of these policies and, and how all of that impacts the, uh, the taxpayer uh, and the American consumer. So, so with that, uh, I'll turn to Sean next to examine one of these more specific policy actions. One of President Biden's first actions was to suspend new fossil fuel leases and drilling permits on federal lands and waters for 60 days, which then kind of became indefinite. Uh, and I think the, the initial response is this just kind of comes across as a loss for the, the coal, oil, and gas industry. But it, it's really so much more than that, particularly for the Western and Gulf Coast states. So if this does persist, Sean, how does it affect these states and communities and the, and the consumer? Well, thanks, Nick, for, for having me, and thanks for Heritage. Thanks to Heritage for hosting this. Um, yeah, I think I think we should we should clarify that the administration's action here did not ban drilling on existing leases, um, but it will not be issuing new leases under this moratorium. Um, and you know, as far as how it affects states and communities, um, federal energy revenues are a, a major source of of federal income. They're they're second only to to taxes, um, and they provide funding for states and, a, and, and to a variety of different federal programs. Um, so something that we've written about recently are the, sort of the fiscal consequences of these actions um, for many many states, and you mentioned in particular you know, Western states with a lot of federal lands, um, as well as Gulf Coast states that derive significant revenue through revenue sharing agreements with the federal government um, from offshore energy development as well. Um, so in the West, I mean, this is a big issue for um, states like New Mexico, uh, where more than half of the oil production in the state uh, comes from federal land. Um, Wyoming is also a state that's uh, impacted uh, significantly by this, this action. There's states like Colorado, Alaska, um, to a lesser extent, Montana, where I'm based. Um, and then in the Gulf Coast, I mean, Louisiana um, gets a significant amount of revenue from, from offshore drilling off its coast. Um, these, these revenues are used for um, a variety of different state programs, uh, education is, is a big one. 
um, but, but other sort of local public services are also impacted. Um, in New Mexico, it's a, it's a really sizable portion of their state budget that comes from uh, energy revenues from, from federal lands. Um, so this does have a big impact on, on, on many of those states. You had a, uh, a University of Wyoming analysis that, that was um, cited a lot in the media on this with the, they found that a lease moratorium could cost uh, Western states $1.6 billion per year in, in lost tax revenue with New Mexico and, and Wyoming um, bearing the brunt of, of the losses. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Todd, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and, and focus on kind of the, the end-use consumer from the transportation side. You know, obviously one big push coming from the Biden administration is to, to really electrify the transportation sector as much as possible. Uh, can, can you just give an overview of you know, what they have planned and what your top-line assessment of it is? Yeah, happy to do that, and and I also appreciate uh, the invitation to be here uh, today, and th thanks to Heritage for the for the format. Um, the Biden administration is pursuing a, a number of different policies to to electrify the the nation's uh, vehicle fleet, and I'm sure that there'll be more to come. But so far, we've seen th them announce a goal of of building 500,000 charging stations by 2030. Uh, President Biden signed an executive order. Um, expressing a desire to electrify the federal fleet. Um, there's also an executive order that's been signed to try to work out some of the supply chain uh, issues associated with uh, EV electric vehicle battery production. Uh, there are a number of bills that have been in introduced in the House that support uh, charging infrastructure and further deployment of electric vehicles. And then, of course, there, there are some tools that, that have uh, been on the books for, for quite some time. Uh, like tailpipe emission standards administered uh, administered by the Environmental Protection Agency and NHTSA, you know, all of which can 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 form, uh, a, a, I guess, a tapestry of policies to force uh, electric vehicles in, into the marketplace. And our, our top line assessment is that uh, electric vehicles will play an increasing role in the decarbonization decarbonization of the transportation sector. There's no question about that. Uh, but there are some very serious questions relative to costs, performance supporting infrastructure and their environmental footprint uh, that remain uh, to be to be worked out. At the same time, uh, other vehicle de technologies uh, are making great strides in, in, in reducing emissions. And I think that's that's one of the things that we uh, unfortunately don't hear uh, a lot about. There's a lot of been good progress that's been made in other more traditional types of technologies. And so from a Conserve America standpoint, we, we, we believe that this is something that should be worked out in the marketplace. Uh, not through uh, government interventions, through subsidies and mandates and the like. Thanks, Todd. I want to stick with you for a second because uh, the, the report that you recently put out on EVs and, and examining uh, kind of the life cycle assessment cost, you know, one of the top line messages that you had from that report was that the term zero emissions vehicle is a, a, a little bit misleading. Uh, can you, Can you explain what you meant by that in your report? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yes, uh, so uh, Conserve America, uh, I guess a number of months ago, put out uh, is really a, a literature review of analyses that have been done on um, various uh, vehicle uh, technologies and their and their overall life cycle emissions. And and yes, zero emissions is is not a little misleading. I'd say it's 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 very misleading um, because all vehicles, uh, when you look at their life cycle, and when I when I say life cycle. That's including everything from uh, construction to, to use uh, to their ultimate uh, disposal. Uh, they all produce um, emissions. 
uh, internal combustion engines, this, it happens to come from uh, the combustion of fuel in the tailpipe, and that's the one that, that, that the term is most often referred to. Um, but battery-operated uh, vehicles also um, uh, have emissions associated with them from things like electricity generation, vehicle production, and actually generating or, or, or making the battery can be up to 30% of the overall vehicle's life cycle uh, emissions. And so the, one of the, the conclusions that, that, that we found when we did this uh, literature review is that there's relative parity um, um, among various vehicle types and their overall life cycle emissions. There again, when you take everything into consideration. And that, that's uh, something that, that's not out there in the narrative right now and, and really should be uh, as we you know, consider these various policies that come with tremendous costs um, uh, to move forward with a all electric vehicle agenda. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I think one of the, the aspects that uh, we need to make clear with many of these policies uh, is that the environmental benefits, because in many respects are, are devoid in, in some of these instances, are certainly not worth the cost. And Sean, you've spent uh, a lot of time kind of looking through, you know, not only do these policies, not the environmental benefits out, outweigh the, the, the cost of these policies, but also potentially undermine uh, some of what the Biden administration's progressive policies uh, aim to achieve. Uh, can you explain a little bit what, what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of the, the um, oil lease moratorium, oil and gas leasing moratorium, you know, really won't have much in terms of environmental benefits uh, simply because supply restrictions like this do little or nothing to reduce demand for fossil fuels, which is ultimately what will have to happen to make a meaningful impact at reducing you know, pollution and greenhouse gases. Um, so in most cases, the production will simply sh shift elsewhere, um, either overseas or in some cases across borders to private lands or, or other states. So in the case of New Mexico, which I mentioned earlier, um, much of that production that would have happened on federal lands in New Mexico, which is in the, the Permian Basin, the oil-rich oil Permian Basin, which straddles the border between New Mexico and Texas, much of that production will simply shift to Texas, where there's there's essentially no um, federal land. And so this, we had a report actually out yesterday from the, the Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas that was was saying essentially this, that, that they predicted lots of that. Um, that production will simply shift elsewhere. So. Um, so, you know, demand for oil and gas will only fall really when, when cheaper and better options are available, not when the U.S. government restricts its supply on federal lands. Hey, guys. I'm here. Uh, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And again, it's good to see your guys' faces uh, now through the webinar. Uh, Travis, I want to shift the same question to you. One of the, the top line uh, goals of the Biden administration is full decarbonization of the power sector by 2035. Kind of in that same framework, uh, you know, what costs are you concerned about there? But also, um, do you see the type of environmental benefits from that full decarbonization that the, the Biden administration aims to achieve? Yeah, and I realized I forgot to thank you as, as I joined. So th thanks for the invitation to be here. It's, it's, it's great to be with everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's a vitally important question. I think first we have to establish a clear definition of decarbonization. I think there's a few different ones floating around. Uh, and I'll talk about three and I'll talk, I'll talk about them in terms of sort of the most costly, uh, 
going to lease. So the most costly would be a, a mandate that you use only certain technologies like wind, solar, and hydro. So if you're talking about a 100% renewables grid, that's a different flavor of decarbonization than sort of the, the next tier down would be 100% clean, which I think is what the Biden team is referring to. Although I've seen it sort of uh, confused in a few places where, you know, it says full decarbonization, 100% renewables, you, you see sort of all of these used interchangeably, they're not the same thing. So if you're talking about 100% uh, carbon emission free, which I think is what the Biden team refers to, that would include technologies like nuclear power. So that's obviously a, a game changer in terms of being able to produce a lot more power without carbon. Uh, the next thing is sort of in the uh, feasibility tiers, the, the easiest thing to do and, and the least costly is sort of a net zero approach. And that's where you would allow a certain amount of offsets. So even if you emitted carbon at the point of production, say you have gas plants still online, you would be able to offset that carbon either, uh, you know, probably the, the, the most obvious examples would be you can either capture it, uh, you can capture it at the point of, uh, of production, which is a, a common thing. There's actually emerging technologies to capture it directly from the ambient air. Uh, so that would be a, a way to, to offset. Uh, another way, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly the, the feasibility of the technology, but I mean, we've, we've seen everything uh, from sort of the carbon capture technology to like geoengineering and, and things like that. So there's there's ways to have sort of a, uh, at the end of the day, the net zero effect. Uh, and that seems to bring a lot more technologies to the table and makes it uh, feasible and less costly. Uh, in terms of the overall environmental benefits, um, it's important to get a little perspective here. So I'll, I'll just try to put it in sort of a, a pie chart framework. Uh, the total US contribution to the greenhouse gas issue. So uh, in terms of the, the, the global impact, we're about 15% of the share. Uh, and these figures change a lot. So you know, if, if, if I end up being fact-checked, that's fine. Something like 15% of, of, of the global impact. Now within the US, um, the electricity sector is not the largest greenhouse gas emitting sector at this point. It used to be, uh, I believe it's transportation now, but it's about 27%. So if you do 27% of 15%, you end up with about 4%. So if you're talking about decarbonizing the U.S. power grid, it, you know, if that's the answer to a global problem, uh, the, the biggest impact you could have is a, is, is a 4%, you know, it, that the U.S. can only have a 4% impact on global GHG emissions if you focus on the U.S. power sector alone. Yeah, thanks, Travis. And, and one of the, the overarching themes uh, that, that I've seen in these issues, um, you know, whether it's federal lands policy, uh, EVs, uh, or electricity, uh, is that there's a, a lot of government-imposed obstacles to in increasing uh, clean energy sources, uh, transmission lines, um, natural gas that can have uh, emissions and environmental benefits as well. Uh, we saw you know, Senator Manchin say something about an infrastructure policy and that he wouldn't pursue one uh, if all of the Republicans weren't on board and, and you know, we're, we're nonpartisan here at Heritage, but, it, but it's important to, to recognize uh, some bipartisan, bipartisan decisionship uh, easier to, to read than to say, apparently. Um, 
you know, what do you guys see as possibilities for um, improving uh, Congress working together to achieve some of these goals? Uh, you know, we've seen some regulatory reform uh, in the previous administration. Uh, the focus seems to be more uh, on ratcheting that back up uh, under this administration, but are, are there areas uh, where you think Democrats and Republicans can work to, together on these respective issues? And, and that's kind of an open question for all three of you. Uh, I, I suppose I'll jump in if that's all right, Nick. Go for it. Um, so I, I think, and I don't have the silver bullet, I'll just point out a, a sticking point that I see, uh, especially when it comes to tight timelines. The, the thing that I didn't bring up is, you know, the, the decarbon decarbonization by what time? So the, the Biden team is talking about 2035. Um, that's only 14 years out. Um, the corporate goals that reach out to 2050, I think are a lot more doable because these things take time. So a, a great example is if you're going to put together an infrastructure package and try to build a lot of transmission, which is absolutely needed if you're going to build out, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're going to incorporate wind and solar and things that, that you can't necessarily locate near where, where people are, you're gonna need the transmission to connect that. Uh, so on, on the one hand, that, that's expensive. On the other hand, um, you know, if, if you're going to start that now, um, a lot of these projects take, you know, between 10, 12, 14 years from start to finish. So you, you have to do the, the planning, the permitting, and then the building. Uh, so if the goal is to basically be decarbonized by 2035, uh, and it takes sometimes the whole 14 years just to build a transmission line, uh, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you would expect um, to be on the short list in terms of, of, of getting things done. I, I'll note, though, that when it comes to building things like gas pipelines, that's been, you know, easier said than done, easier to, to plan than to execute. So uh, whether or not transmission will, will sort of meet the same fate, uh, it, it, it's an open question, but it's it's interesting to me that sort of the uh, the the pro-transmission crowd is is up against sort of what what it's what the the gas pipeline crowd has been up against for for years yeah that's a good point shot or todd do you have anything uh to add no, i would just say that um i mean certainly you know clean, the investment in clean energy technology seems to be something that that folks of, of both sides of the political spectrum can, can rally around the devil is in the details and, and what is defined as, as clean energy. Um, but certainly we've seen things like uh, the, the bill that was just shepherded through Congress uh, last session that had a lot of uh, climate related provisions in it um, was, uh, was passed and will, will, do, will do a lot of good. Infrastructure is another, uh, you know, I guess, rallying point for, for both parties. Again, the, the devil will be in the, in the details. Um, but at least in the Senate, there's a good track record of working on a bipartisan basis to come up with, you know, policies that that uh, move us forward, or get us going in the right direction at least, and and there seems to be some appetite for, uh, you know, an increasing, an increasingly detailed look at things that can reduce emissions. For for example, Senator Barrasso even had a climate change provision in the in the, in the infrastructure package that he drafted, in in the last uh, Congress. Uh, I mean, in terms of a, of a bigger deal, I mean, I, th I think, um, and this this is not particularly you know, revolutionary or anything, but we're gonna to have to see both sides, you know, come come to the table. And and the sticking point, at least for the folks that, that I have always worked with uh, and for, has been, 
what are we going to do with the existing regulatory framework that we have uh, in place or that could be implemented? And by that, I mean through you know, EPA's uh, regulatory authorities under the, the, the Clean Air Act and, 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 other, and other statutes. And, and, and if, if, if there's a discussion about trading that with something else that makes more sense, and we've had a lot of conversations in, in various forms about what's, what's a better policy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but, but there's going to need to be a trade-off, I think, at some point. And so when there's recognition of, of that, um, and when we can, can maybe take something that isn't a very good fit uh, to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, like the Clean Air Act, and replace it with something that makes more sense and is least costly, then I think you'll, you'll, you'll see some movement. But I, I don't anticipate, outside of some sort of reconciliation um, initiative, um, that, that will get anything passed big and bold uh, absent that. Yeah, Nick, I'll, you know, I'll jump in, maybe going back to the, the fiscal consequences of, of the oil and gas leasing ban that I was mentioning earlier. And since you brought up my, my background with the National Park Service, um, something that, that we've been really interested in here is, is looking at how, how these actions affect um, things like the, 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 the National Park Service's maintenance backlog which is a big issue um, that Congress, in a bipartisan fashion last year, um, devoted a significant amount of funding uh, for. And so um, this, this I think, is, is related in terms of this bipartisan opportunities here. And, and last year, we saw this uh, Great American Outdoors Act passed by Congress, um, which was a landmark conservation bill that did a, did a number of things, um, one of which was, was permanently um, uh, fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is the, the government's primary primary land acquisition fund, but also create a new fund dedicated to uh, reducing the deferred maintenance backlog across our national parks and other public lands, which across the federal state is is uh, nearly $20 billion. Um, and so this was a bill that was, was, was bipartisan, but the interesting thing as it relates to this discussion is that the, the, the funding source for both of those things was federal energy revenues, and we, we seem to not really connect the dots as much uh, this year on, in, in terms of the administration's actions to now uh, ban oil and gas leasing, and what's going to happen uh, to the future of those programs, which we've just set up to be funded by, by federal energy revenue. So I think that's, a, that's something that Congress could explore, is, is if we are going down the path of, of uh, energy leasing bans, and we're going to reduce fossil fuel extraction on public lands and waters, then we need to find other ways to fund those programs that Congress just just passed. And so we've already seen with the pandemic um, declines in, in energy revenues that have, that have threatened full funding for that maintenance backlog um, fund that, that Congress just created. We narrow, narrowly had enough money in that uh, account this year to, to, to fund it. So um, what's going to happen in years to come, and, and might Congress come up with other alternative ways of funding those, those programs? Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, you know, in one respect, it, it's nice that the uh, the energy production is tied into conservation and recreations effort because uh, actions have consequences. And, and but that doesn't mean that uh, people should be suffering either. And so one thing you know you've looked at, Sean, is alternative models uh, to to fund some of these conservation and, and recreation efforts. Uh, what what do you see as those potential alternatives, and, and do they resonate with folks in in these western states? Yeah, um, 
thanks for the question. Yeah, we we have um, long been been advocating for alternate funding sources to reduce reliance on um, federal energy revenues for conservation and recreation funding. I think one of the things that um, is worth exploring is is sort of looking at um, other models. You know, you have you have something like you have the hunter and angler community, which is a is a uh, really a user funded system where uh, where hunters and anglers pay in whether whether it's through licenses or uh, license fees or through uh, excise taxes on on gear. Um, there's federal programs that that then disperse those those funds to states, and so you really have this this sort of um, depoliticized but reliable funding source that's user generated for state uh, wildlife funding. Um, I think that's an interesting model to consider when you think of uh, you know, conservation and recreation funding moving forward. You know, how might users play more of a role in funding these sorts of things rather than relying on fossil fuel extraction? I think there's a little more of a, of a recognition now that you know we don't maybe a lot of these groups don't want to be um, in the business of funding conservation and recreation through fossil fuel revenues. Um, it's unlikely that renewable energy development is going to make up the gap anytime soon. So we might need to explore new new ways and users. You know, the outdoor recreation industry is a kind of economic powerhouse these days and, and loves to tout what a major force it is. Well, uh, you know, it would only take a small portion of that economic um, contribution to to be put toward uh, you know, conservation and recreation funding that might be a better way of funding this stuff and, and even a more reliable way of funding this stuff uh, moving forward. Thanks, uh, Sean. I appreciate that. Uh, Todd, going back to EVs, um, two questions for you that I'll lump into one is, you know, one, uh, you know, the, there's been a lot of preaching about energy independence over the years uh, from, you know, both Democrat and Republican presidents, uh, that there's a sense that, you know, given the, the nature of oil being a global market, you can't really achieve, you know, efficiency uh, when it comes to independence, but maybe insulate better from uh, supply shocks that we've seen in the past. Uh, is there a concern uh, with, uh, China's control of mineral resources necessary for EVs uh, that we're giving some of that up. Are there national security concerns uh, that that we should be worried about, or are those uh, overblown? Uh, no, I don't think that they're overblown. Overblown, uh, certainly to the extent that we're contemplating a, a major shift toward the reliance on uh, electric vehicles for for, for transportation. Uh, and 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 you're right. I mean, you know, China and and other other nations that are not necessarily you know, friendly to our our economic and national security interests are you know currently in control uh, and or you know developed you know most of the mineral resources that are needed for um, you know, for batteries and other components that we would need be, that would be needed uh, for a major shift towards um, you know, EVs. And I think that's why uh, that uh, President Bond and uh, Biden signed that uh, EO uh, recently to, to examine um, you know where our, our our threats are and and what we can we can do about it, which is a I guess to the extent that we're contemplating this positive this policy it is is a, is a positive move. And second part of your question was I'm sorry. What's that? Oh, no, I think you uh, I think you you largely covered it. Um, yeah, the second part I wanted to to address is. Uh, the the private sector announcement of shifts to EVs. You had you know GM make big proclamations uh, and a number of other autos saying 
we want to be fully electric by a given year. Uh, what do you make of that? Do you see that as, uh, you know, given kind of cost challenges, ramping up these uh, the production of EVs, is, is that just going to be a natural market organic shift? Is it a combination of that and virtue signaling? Uh, you know, is it uh, reliance on policies that will help get them there, whether it's, you know, the, the extension of the EV tax credit? Uh, what do you make of these companies announcing, making these announcements? Yeah, I guess, you know, it, it's a big bet on, on their part. Uh, and and you, it's hard to divorce it from the policies that are in place or that are being contemplated either at the federal or at the state level that are supporting, you know, EVs. I mean, there's, there's a current, there's a tax credit, there, there's legislation that, that wants to, uh, you know, expand and, and extend the, the, the tax credit. Um, and, and, there, and, and as I mentioned, there, there are all sorts of other policies in place. So absent that, you, you would wonder if, if they would be betting um, on EVs the, the, the way that they are. Um, you know, I, I don't have a, a crystal ball to, to, know that, to know that exactly, but it, it's hard to, to, to separate um, the two at this point. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, Travis, have you looked at all, you know, as to, to what it could mean for electricity demand and how that could affect the market? Yeah, and we've we've seen some some parallels too, where you know if the uh, if the policy goal or if it turns into a policy mandate of decarbonization by a, a certain date, you know it it seems uh, like it's not that different from a, a, a corporate goal. We, we've seen a, a whole lot of companies and even utilities in the power sector saying we we want to be net zero by 2050. Uh, I think one interesting thing with that um, we can assume that you can get to net zero and that you can fold in EVs and uh, you, you can actually reach that uh, higher demand and things will work out fine. I, I think the question that I have is, you can do all the studies you want, let's, 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 let's say it doesn't work out fine. Uh, if it's a mandated policy from Congress, it's much harder to basically drop or change course as opposed to a corporate goal. You could say, yeah, well, we tried really hard, but it ended up being uh, impossible to do, so we're just going to drop it. So it doesn't take an act of Congress to basically say uh, we we haven't uh, chosen the, the right path. Um, you know, as far as can you incorporate, because uh, that, that's that's kind of the idea is that you decarbonize the power sector first. Um, you have EVs to basically help decarbonize the transportation sector. That's the thought process. Um, We'll see if it works out that way. I mean, I'm I'm comfortable with the idea that the power sector can take on increased demand. Uh, we just have to be smart about how we do it. And one one great thing about EVs or or you know about uh, battery storage in general, uh, it's incredibly flexible. Um, so it's the kind of thing that if you're able to to charge a car at a, at a certain time when say uh, there's just a, a a ton of power on the grid and, and your, your prices are low, um, you know, it, it, it could actually get to a, 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 a you know, a, a good outcome, but uh, I'm not entirely sure that the uh, firm mandates from Congress are the way to do it. I prefer the, the, the voluntary goals just in case uh, things don't work out as, as well as we hope. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point. Um, yeah, sticking with you for a second, Travis, and I know this was supposed to end at 1245, but we're, given the technical problems I had in the beginning, we're going to 
extend the, ru the run of show a little bit longer here. Um, so sticking with you, Travis, and, and I'm kind of weaving in some of the audience questions here. Uh, do, do we have a good idea as to what the cost of energy and different energy sources are? I know this is something you've really thought a lot about. Uh, and, um, you know, there's studies out there that people often point to, but do we have a good idea as to what the, the cost of alternative energy is or, or just conventional energy um, and how policies and subsidies play into that? Uh, you know, what's your assessment? Uh, so the, there's a few different ways to answer the question. I, I think probably the, the most direct way is, yeah, if, it seems like everybody wants to know about the cost of a given technology. And if you want to go that path, uh, the way we've done it historically is you look at the levelized cost of electricity saying you're like going to build a plant in five years and you you want to know what what the output of that plant is going to cost over the life of, of the plant that's one way to do it uh, I don't think that's the best way to do it because that's not how we pay for things um, we basically pay for the grid as an entire system and I personally w would prefer a, an approach that takes a system-wide view and says uh, yeah, if the cost of producing, let's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll choose wind for a, a, a moment. Um, at the point of production, uh, it can be very low cost. Um, the question then is, um, you know, what, what does it cost to actually make that product firm? Uh, you know, in, in terms of, is it going to be there when you really need it? Um, and then, you know, the, all, all the other elements of it, like the transmission, how much does it cost to actually bring that power to, to, folks who, who use it. Um, so yeah, th there's all sorts of approaches to it. I, I, I like the ones that that take sort of a, a portfolio-wide, like a system-wide approach. And I'll, I'll, I'll call out the work of EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute, has done some really good work on the decarbonization question and sort of the, the cost over the various timelines. They do uh, uh, a 2035 model and a 2050 model, turns out, uh, extending to 2050 is a lot more cost effective. Um, so, I mean, th there is good work in this space, but it's it's incredibly complicated. And to answer the question about sort of wh what does each resource cost, um, it's just not exactly how um, how we use power. So it's 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 tough to answer in that way. Yeah, that's a, a very good overview, and I appreciate that. Um, uh, another question from the audience uh, that, that I had of my own that I haven't gotten to yet, which is great, uh, both for, for Sean and Todd, is uh, the 30 by 30 initiative. Um, you know, it seems like it's not getting that much traction uh, on the East Coast, but maybe the Western folks are, are paying attention to it a little bit more. Can can start out with Sean uh, and then Todd, you can jump in, you know, especially given Conserve America's work in in the conservation space and the work with the Roosevelt Caucus. Uh, I know both of your organizations are focused on this. Sean, can you kind of give an, a, an overview, of, and then there, maybe it's not a ton of details, but what they're thinking and, and what your assessment so far might be? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is, this is one of those, um, you know, things tucked away in, in the executive orders um, on the first week, but, but this is a goal to uh, put, to, to, to preserve, 30% uh, of all U.S. waters and land by 2030. Um, so 30 by 30 um, is what it's called. And, and the details are still being hashed out. I believe next month, um, some of the federal agencies are, are, are due to put forth some some plans on how to how to implement this. Um, 
but 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 yeah, this is this is a goal. So our uh, estimates are around 12 or 18 percent is currently what's preserved under you know, things like national parks and wilderness areas. Um, but yeah, the qu question moving forward is is how how are we going to reach this goal? What are the steps that the federal government's going to take? Um, and what are they going to count as as conserved and not conserved? Um, not all U.S. federal lands uh, are going to be considered conserved. There's of course you know extractive uses of those lands uh, that are that are going on, or there's certain lands that aren't under formal protections that might be used to as the criteria for for achieving 30 by 30. So, but I think it raises some interesting questions. One is you know, is the funding issues that I was mentioning earlier. You know, one of the government's main tools for doing uh, for achieving this this sort of conservation is is some of the programs like the uh, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which, as we said earlier, is funded entirely by federal energy revenues. So, what are we going to do uh, moving forward with that if if that revenue source is not going to be as as reliable moving forward? Um, and also, the question is, what about private lands? So, uh, there's certainly a lot of private lands that are that are conserved and ought to be considered. Uh, conserved, uh, especially private working landowners um, that maintain large uh, working landscapes, provide a lot of valuable habitat. Many of these are under uh, conservation easements or, or are managed in ways that are uh, consistent with with conservation. You know, how is the administration going to pursue this in a way that um, involves those private landowners and incorporates them into this process? It doesn't impose uh, on them, you know, uh, regulations or designations that might have unintended consequences in terms of their willingness to continue to provide those conservation benefits if it might mean, um, you know, uh, red tape or, or reduction in their land values or, or, or things like that that often happen in the conservation space when you're talking about government action. So I think there's a there's some interesting questions out there in terms of how the administration is going to pursue this, um, and that's something that we're we're following pretty closely. Yeah, yeah. So from Conserve America's uh, perspective, you know, we're, we're keeping a, a close eye on on this. You know, there, not to be too repetitive here, but there there are a lot of questions that remain unanswered just with respect to how the administration um, you know plans to to proceed with this. You mentioned the the reaction of, of Western states um, versus uh, states Eastern states. I guess you know, that that doesn't come as, as much surprise you know, given that the federal the federal government controls. In much of the land that's 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 west of, of the Mississippi, so certainly uh, folks are going to be more exercised uh, uh, on on these issues uh, from a Western perspective when they look toward their their need for development and economic um, you know continuing economic prosperity. Um, so you know, so we're we're waiting to see the details. Uh, certainly, um, issues with respect to, to private property rights, um, dual use principles. You know, what does it mean to be uh, a conserved land does that mean it, you know you, you can also you know hike on it and or, or do other other types of uh, recreational activities you know all those details you know need to be flushed out as we move forward yeah absolutely thank you um you know one overarching theme um that i'm seeing in the questions are and uh, you know it's been touched on uh, throughout this session is uh are the environmental benefits uh, of these policies worth the costs um, whether it's to electrify the transportation sector um, or or change the makeup of the grid and the resources that we use um, so you know i think the underlying uh answer uh, that we've heard is in a lot of respects no um, but also at the same time you know what do you guys see as opportunities uh, for reform to to get us in that direction. I mean, this push for decarbonization obviously isn't going anywhere anytime soon. 
Uh, I, I think there is concern that, yes, we can say these policies are, are bad, uh, they're, they, they're regressive in nature and they're harmful to consumers and people's energy bills are going to go up and you're not going to see uh, much impact in terms of mitigated warming or averted sea level rise, um, but, but, but what's your solution? So I wanna close with uh, each of you um, and, and take this wherever you want. You know, what do you guys see as a, a solution where you think policymakers should should get behind? Uh, we'll start in the um, with Travis and then work our way uh, through Sean and then to Todd. Uh, you asked the toughest question, then you asked me to go first. I, I get it, Nick. Uh, no, I, I think so. The the global framing of of the of the greenhouse gas problem is is important. So it's got to be whatever the silver bullet is, and I don't know what it is yet. It probably hasn't been invented yet. Whatever it is has to be globally scalable is the bottom line. Um, so we, we can do all we want here. I, I think it would be nice to set a good example in terms of, you know, if we if we do this wrong, if we do it in a very expensive way that backfires, uh, I doubt other countries will say, we should do exactly what the U.S. did. Uh, so I, I think part of that is being very cost conscious and that's something that has been missing in terms of the, you know, the stuff that I've seen. Really, cost has not been front and center, and I think it needs to be, uh, both from the feasibility angle and from the sort of the, the idea that if, if this is a policy that we're supposed to sell to the world, we should do it right. We should do it in, in a way that's not going to make bills go through the roof. Um, Nick, yeah, I mean, I'll just you know reiterate on the on the funding issues as it relates to the, the oil and gas um, leasing ban. I mean, I think it's it, it it's to say that the environmental um, consequences of this action are larger than just sort of what the on the ground impacts of where does this you know, shift production. It's that these things are we we have we've now have decades and decades of tying certain federal programs, many of them conservation related. Um, to federal energy revenues and treating those as if they're just sort of free money um, that doesn't cost taxpayers anything. And we're going to have to figure out a way to unwind that if this is the, the, new, the new policy moving forward and if this moratorium is going to be extended or expanded in some ways. Um, so I think that's that's just an interesting thing that we'll have to really deal with in the years ahead. Um, you know, Nick, I also mentioned something that I know that, that you've become interested in is, is this idea of what we call conservation leasing at Perk. Um, and the idea here is just that you know, to introduce a little bit more market like market mechanisms into the the uh, natural resource management and leasing processes that we have on federal lands. Um, and so, you know, I think many people are surprised to learn that uh, conservationists can't participate in these, you know, the, the lease auctions for rights to say oil and gas leases and then, and then decide not to use them or they cannot acquire existing uh, leases from from current um, leaseholders, and and this really creates barriers to to more market-based, perhaps cooperative solutions um, to to resolving conflicts over resource use on federal lands. And so, what we've really been looking at over the last couple of years is ways to 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 reform these use it or lose it requirements on our federal lands as it relates to oil and gas leasing, uh, grazing on federal lands, timber leases, um, in a more market-like way, where you could have some uh, you could you could allow conservationists to participate in these markets and, and choose to conserve resources if they um, so choose to do that. And so, you know, I think this is something that we've seen success in at the state level in water markets. We have in, in many states vibrant water markets for, for conservation purposes because we've reformed those institutions to allow for those exchanges. You can now hold water rights 
in many states for in-stream flow purposes to benefit fish and wildlife habitat. You know, could we have a similar system like that on, on federal lands? Maybe you have a different outcome in the case of ANWR leasing, which was really you know, controversial earlier this year at the end of the Trump administration, where you know leases went for a pittance, but conservation interests likely would have um, bid, bid far more to preserve that landscape. So I think that's an interesting thing to, to consider and something that we've been working on lately here at PERC. Great, Todd, you want to close yeah. us out? Okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize that was up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that in the context of of, the, of this as, as a global uh, issue, I think um, a better appreciation of of the costs of what we are we are contemplating doing uh, decarbonizing um, you know our society needs to be uh, you know brought to bear on the on the, the policies that we're that we're looking at. I mean, just to circle back to the the uh, electric vehicle subsidies, there are estimates that, that have on a, on a per ton uh, of reduction basis that have the, the EV uh, subsidy costing, you know, 350 to up to $600 you know, per ton of, of carbon reduction. Uh, you know, you contrast that with, uh, say, for example, switching uh, natural gas, uh, coal to a natural gas fired power plant, uh, estimates of those costs are, are around, you know, 25 to 27 tons of, of CO2 um, abated. Certain efficiency programs, you know, actually, you know, pay pay for themselves. So I think that we need to get our, our heads around, you know, what it is that we're contemplating, and you know, asking society to do, um, and where, who's going to bear those those costs. Once we have a better appreciation for that, I think um, then we'll be able to come to the table and, and look at ways to move forward. I mean, echoing my, my comments of, of previously, I, I do think that there's going to need to be some compromise on on both sides of the aisle. To ultimately move forward in some sort of of, of policy that, that that begins to take a major major stab um, at this issue, and you know I mentioned you know, regulatory reform uh, previously, but there also needs to be you know some some recognition that that some of the policies that have been put for, forward on on the 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 left side of the political perception uh, spectrum are incredibly costly and are just not something that are going to Going to bear out uh, through the, the legislative process that we have uh, currently. So, I think you know recognizing the, those those various things um, is, is the path forward. Whether we can get there or not, it remains to be seen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I, I really appreciate the the time today. Uh, thank you to the audience for uh, bearing with us with regard to uh, the technical issues in the beginning. But I, I hope you got out of this uh, as much as as I did. Um, please check out uh, Travis, Todd, and Sean's uh, respective organizations. There's a, a lot of great content. Uh, Sean recently had a great op-ed on uh, that conservation leasing uh, that, that was featured in, in Grist. Uh, Todd's EV study is uh, new and, and very relevant in the context of what the Biden administration is pushing. And Travis, if you really want to get into the weeds of some nerdy, nerdy issues that only about four people understand, you can go to Elcon site and look through the FERC filings. Uh, but um, really appreciate it, guys. And I really appreciate everybody's uh, attendance uh, and participation. And thank you for the thoughtful questions. And uh, we will follow up with uh, some of those resources. So thanks again and uh, enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Take care. Thanks. Thanks, Nick.